hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the stupid answer Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> oh, right. Hello and welcome to the season 18 finale of the Stupid Cancer Show episode 393. We are the voice of Young Adult Cancer. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary. A proud 20-year young adult brain cancer survivor coming to you right now from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. Broadcasting since 2007, the Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer, online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Mallory Rivera, program manager and co-producer of The Stupid Cancer Show, welcoming all our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and following us on SoundCloud. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy, little folks, because The Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. I got a special show to close out the season. All young adult diseases suck. It is true. So here on the season 18 finale of the Stupid Cancer Show, we're diving in to the world of young adult chronic disease. Be it cancer, type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, or in this case, lupus. Stupid lupus. Marlo Jan DeFusco is an e-patient lupus advocate, a blogger behind the uh, award-winning uh, Luck Poopus. Make the most of that. She joins us to discuss the day-to-day and long-term struggles of living with multiple chronic diseases. And a survivor's fellow on Chris Knowles and his family are here to talk about brain cancer, late effects, and what cure really means. And with that, let's start our show. Hello, Mallory. Hello. How are you? Oh, I'm just delightful. How did we get to season 18? Not sure. So season 19 will be the last season before the 10-year anniversary of the show. It will. Wow. Yeah, that's happening real soon. <laughs> I guess that makes sense. If there's two seasons a year and it's 10 years, Yeah, that would be season that's, 20. That sounds about right. That's math. Yeah. Basic math. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> I'm excited. We're, uh, we're starting to get some lineup happening for uh season 19 no it's 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 very cool the the show's become a commodity and it's exciting to be able to share stories on it yes very exciting so what's going on in the news we got uh, omg east and uh, west registration launching in august soon yes that's going to be coming down soon very exciting uh august 
hopefully the second week in August. Yep. So stay tuned. Uh, and OMG East will be taking place in New York on September 17th. And OMG West will be taking place at UC Irvine on October 29th. Yes, and we have Italia Ricci and Suleika Juad as our co-keynote epic. At East? Yes. So uh, excited. Uh, cancer Liberties, we it's, call them. It, I think the universe might explode that they're both in the same place at the same time, um, but it's kind of exciting. It is very cool. For those that are unaware, uh, Suleika Juad is one of the uh, Emmy-winning New York Times blog columnist, young adult survivor. An all-around incredible person. Yes, all-around incredible person, who has been a spokesperson for her story and our story and, and our our organization for many years and the character Italia Ricci the actress played on Chasing Life on ABC Family was based on Suleika's character which was fascinating to see them both in the same room at the same time the first time yeah and now they'll be repeating that again in front of a room of 150 people amazing amazing stuff very exciting and we have uh, unofficially launched today but technically officially saved the date launch today is our fundraiser in New York this fall Yes. Toast, an evening with stupid cancer. Come toast with us to 10 years of celebration. Uh, tickets on sale now at uh, toast.stupidcancer.org. Sponsorships are available, and it's going to be really cool at the NASDAQ in Times Square of all places. I know. that's It's kind of exciting, NASDAQ, middle of Times Square. Pretty amazing. F- fun people, good times. And I want to wish Ethan Zahn, uh, another one of our cancer celebrity best friends, who's a two-time Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor with a transplant from his brother. Talk about a great story. Yeah. Just got married. He did. To his longtime girlfriend, Lisa. Who is also a lovely person. And who are stupid cancer spokespersons and public speakers at CancerCon. Yes, they are. They they're, have spoken the last two years, and they're a lot of fun. I did the math, and I think they're our eighth wedding. In the 10 years of stupid cancer, that's the eighth wedding that's happened. Allie's being Allie Ward, our, our chief program officer, was married this past weekend. Yes, which was a fun very, time. Very, very fun. Allie uh, diagnosed with uh, stage four ovarian cancer, terminal stage four ovarian cancer, seven years ago? Eight years ago? I think eight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were wrong. They were wrong. <laughs> She's and, married and happy and thrilled. And and we danced so hard at her wedding. And and I want to share with our listeners here, we learned of, I learned, this old man learned of a new social platform based on Instagram called... Boomerang. Boomerang. So much fun. It's fun. It's completely useless, but it's still fun. You essentially gif your own life. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Is that the, 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 the marketing tagline? Gif your own life. That's what I'm. how I'm explaining it. And it is so much fun when you pull it out at a wedding. Right. Um, and then you take boomerangs of everyone dancing, and it is four second clips on of just repeating one person, one move. It's great. Highly recommend the boomerang. <laughs> By the way, speaking of GIF, the inventor of the format that is GIF mm-hmm. came out and says, actually pronounced GIF. Yeah, I'm never going to change my ways. <laughs> We've happening. all been wrong all these years. An animated GIF, which makes no sense because it's not like a giraffe. It's a graphic, so it's a hard G. Yeah. Nope. I will just be wrong forever, and I'm good with that. All right. As long as you own it. I completely own That's it. That's all that matters. Well, let's uh, let's kick off our show here. We got a great family life here in studio. Uh, Chris Knowles and his mom and his dad, Angela and Bill. 
I keep saying Bob, but it's Bill. <laughs> uh, Chris is an eight-year brain cancer survivor that has overcome numerous obstacles since receiving radiation treatment for his cancer at CHOP Philadelphia and uh, UPenn. He's dealt with several other health issues and had several surgeries. Despite the adversity put before him, he continues to push forward, bettering himself and helping put an end to cancer. That's a great intro, but I met this kid. He's amazing. I can say kid because I'm 42 and he's 21, but please welcome to the show Chris Knowles and his lovely parents. Hello. Hello. Thank you for trudging all the way across the East River from New Jersey to our fabulous studio here in downtown Manhattan. It's a pleasure to meet you guys. Nice to meet you too. So let's start right out of the gate. Eight years ago. How old were you eight years ago? I'm doing math. 21 minus 8. I was 12. 12. Yeah, that's kind of math-ish, right? So 12, you're just 12. My kids are six, so I can see how innocent 12 was just doing your thing, living your life, being a boy. Uh, and then something happened that changed everything. Where, where, where did things seem to start going wrong? Um, I started with symptoms that I didn't even know were taking place. Um, I was walking quoting everyone else around me i was walking like i was drunk my head was tilted off to the side i was getting sick i didn't have much of an appetite this started out of nowhere yes and um every time i would go to school the teachers would send me to the nurse's office and were saying that my face was drooping I started to get aggravated because I was one of the weird kids that actually enjoyed school. So I didn't like missing class. I heard about people like you. Yeah. We're a rare species. And then my parents started bringing me to the doctors. And before I knew it, I was being airlifted to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I was diagnosed with a germinoma brain tumor. You got to admit, that's still kind of cool getting airlifted, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's just take that at face value. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I felt like I was in an episode of House. (laughs) And Hugh Laurie was just weird watching you. Yeah. Very nice. So, yeah, that's got to be terrifying, right? Extremely. Uh, Mom and dad. (laughs) Terrifying is an understatement. Yeah. I mean, I I, I speak this because I was was 21 when I was diagnosed. And I know from the perspective of a child what my parents went through, but I couldn't know what it was like to be that parent. Would you share with us? how topsy-turvy things actually went and what your initial reactions were and where you went. In 2007, Dr. Google really wasn't as terrifying, perhaps, but tell us about that. Well, at first, probably a month or two prior to that, I had Chris back and forth to the pediatrician for sinus infections. Um, Once that got cleared up, he still wasn't getting better. So that's when it was, bring him to the emergency room. They didn't really know what was going on. They just felt... It was a stomach virus. A day and a half later, his pediatrician was ordering blood work. We couldn't even get the results for that. And I had him at another ER, and they did the MRI and saw the tumor and sort of pulled us out of the room where Chris was and said he had a tumor. So never had an experience like that. It sounds actually interesting that the, the MRI was scheduled so quickly that they didn't really delay and say, oh, it's something else, something else, something else. Right. Was that surprising to you that they rushed and they, they took it seriously? Um, because he was having a hard time walking, Chris would always yell at the walls. Okay. Because since his head was tilted, right. he felt the walls were moving and it really actually wasn't him. Mm-hmm. So once we got him to the second ER, 
right away they went ahead and you know checked to see what was taking place neurologically and that's when they found it um, and they brought us into a, a private room and left Chris in in the exam room and the ER doctor told us you know what was taking place and they were waiting for the chopper to get there and they were going to bring him to chop right away so Chris was it uh, I mean at 12 were you aware that or actually I, I assume he, you had disclosed this to him at some point or did you go unaware? I wasn't informed until I believe the following morning at okay. the children's hospital. Was it a, a relief to at least know it was something? If it's even safe to say it that way? Yes and no. Right. <laughs> it, you know, it was sort of like, all right, now what do we have to do from here? Just let us know. And right. Chris always wanted to know everything. So when the neurosurgeon came in to tell us about the surgeries and what was going to have to take place. I said, no, you got to wake him up. He's, but it's five o'clock in the morning. I said, I don't care. He's going to want to ask questions and you need to answer them. I can't. So he woke him up and went over everything. It happened right before Christmas. Wow. So, so talk us through what happened next. A surgery was scheduled, a biopsy. Biopsy. They did. The biopsy was actually done on Christmas Eve. Um, Prior to that, he had another surgery to have the shunt placed in because he had fluid building up. Right. Um, so that took place probably two, three days after being admitted to CHOP. That They had to get the fluid drained because he had close to two gallons of water building up. Wow. So that's why his head was... That's so hydrocephalus? Tilted. Correct. Yes. Yes. Um, so that they had to get that taken care of and get his body calmed down from that. And then a few days later, which was Christmas Eve, they went in to do the biopsy. They were pretty much determined that it was the germinoma, but they just needed to do the biopsy just to confirm it and make sure nothing else was there. Was that based on radiology? They just kind of knew the shape and the location? From what they told us, yes. And what was the location? On the pineal gland. Wow. Okay. That's a serious place. Not that the brain isn't entirely a wholly serious place, but that's a pretty serious place right there. That's what I thought. I was reading that you had a, a shunt rejection? Yes. So how long did that take for the body to reject the shunt? Um, I'd say as soon as it did what it had to do, my body was basically saying, I want you out of me. Right. And That whole foreign object thing is really not the way biology is supposed to be. Right. Yeah. And the doctors at CHOP did a few revisions. Um, They had to replace the tubing at one point because it got clogged. And then we kept saying something was wrong, something was wrong. The shunt needs to come out. Mm -hmm. I didn't have hydrocephalus anymore. And then we found a neurosurgeon actually in New York. And he said what you just said, that having material inside your body, it's just naturally going to reject it because Mm -hmm. it's not part of your body. Right. And he removed the tubing. And now the only thing that I have left is the reservoir in my head. So God forbid if they ever had to tap it to make sure that there's no hydrocephalus reoccurring, it's there so they can easily access it. You at least store information in there, like, like a RAM chip or something. I, it's got to come in handy somehow. Wi-Fi, maybe? I hope. <laughs> um, maybe one day. It's like your, your internal tinfoil hat, perhaps, if you want to connect yeah. with aliens. There you go. So surgery happens. Right. Talk us through that. Um, that was to, to excise, and that was processed over a couple of days. 
what was happening was the the uh, the tubing w- was actually over draining the spinal fluid. Right. So they had to externalize it and kind of let his body slowly, you know, equal out with the pressurized to get it to the point where they can remove it. And his body was taking care of it on its own. So, so yeah. That, that was a process of a, a solid week, week and a half. Right. Really? Wow, that long? Yeah. So I remember when my tumor, my, my symptom when I had brain cancer was my left hand lost all fine motor coordination. That was my immediate, I had other major symptoms, but that was the most acute because I was a pianist, so that was kind of difficult to right. play. So when they removed, when I woke up in the hospital after the surgery, I could use my left hand again. It wasn't as phenomenal as it used to be. Did you notice right away once you became cognizant after surgery that there was a, a difference? I personally didn't, but I also don't have much memory okay. of during then. I think I was on too many medications at the time to gotta love the morphine drip, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, parents, did did you notice? Did the head tilt change, or did the gait? change a little bit in his walking was there any noticeable that did improve probably over about a week or two right. it slowly got better um, his left hand he had a lot of tremors in and that was another reason why we knew something was definitely wrong he couldn't do his science homework or project because the hand was tremoring so much sure so over you know the next few weeks to a month that definitely did improve and the, his color of his skin changed almost within days came back to a normal and helped a lot with the nausea as well. That's good. So then there's always the now what, what's next, are we done yet conversation, and they probably said, ah, no, you're not done. What was that discussion? Um, well, I wasn't really part of it in terms of the doctor. Um, at first, I believe he only spoke to them, and then it was bring me into the room and describe everything to me as well. And it was, we're going to do radiation treatment for the tumor. Um, I think it was six to eight weeks they were approximating, and it was come 2008, you'll start your radiation treatment, you'll go five days a week for the next six to eight weeks. And this was, I mean, sorry, he's pediatric. He's a minor. Right. You're making decisions for him, but you want to respect that a 12-year-old has the wherewithal to appreciate what's happening, and even even the gravity and all of this. Was that, did you have a second opinion? Did you do any other research, or were you just leaning on the recommendations of the doctors right there? Everything happened so fast, we were basically just leaning on them for what they were telling us because at that time we hadn't done research. We really had no good time frame. Everything was happening so quickly. Yeah, and I think it, it, it was a very emotional time. So you, you lean to the doctors in, in, you know, their professionalism for the recommendations and they did give, you know, choices. Um, unfortunately, as we find out today, you know, None of those choices are good on a long term. It's better on a short term. Right, which is the next part of our conversation for the next couple of minutes is is the consequences of the word cure. Right. And that there's a whole new line of thinking in this country, especially for people like us who've been through the grist mill 
that that word really takes in a whole different meaning or no meaning at all, perhaps, Correct. when there is this consequence, there are side effects, there's, there's a um, uh, collateral damage is something I've heard someone ineloquently say once about how, you know, you, you, and then I, I could ask this question because, you know, like we can make jokes because we're in the club. Right. How many of you are like, oh, well, at least he's alive. Right. How many times? How many dollars would you have for every or one of those? If you were going to have cancer, rich. this is the best one to yes. have. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. So let's talk, Chris. Um, uh, your um, uh, side effects are evident and not evident, and you've been very open about them, and you become a, an advocate for all of this, and you have a wonderful uh, foundation that's raising money. Yes. Um, but I had to ask: you're using the word cure. In the name of the foundation, was that intentional? Yes, because it's not so much that a cure exists, because even with all of the treatment options that we have available for diseases such as cancer, as MS, as lupus, for any and all ages, they're not cures they're treatments that can take care of the problem at hand for the time being, and it might save your life, but at the same time, you're not getting the life back that you had prior to your diagnosis. You're sort of trading your old life over for a new life. Right. And what I want to do is help raise money and raise awareness for these different rare diseases for any and all ages so that there can be actual cures for cancer, for MS, for lupus. They, in this day of age, with all the technology we have, with all the fancy things we have, there is no reason, in my opinion, why we shouldn't have cures by now for these diseases. No, it's a very noble philosophy. It, it's nuanced and complicated, but you're absolutely right. And and it's true that there are some cancers that they have literally magic pills. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a disease called chronic myelogenous leukemia, and there's a drug called Spricel or Gleevec, and it just stops the cancer. And it doesn't make the cancer leave your body. It just stops it. So you just live with this cancer in your body in like a homeostasis for the rest of your life. But you can never go off the pill. But if that's a cure, I'll take that as a cure. Right. So I really want to, people, I say people, like the general public doesn't, and I don't fault them for this, understand that there can be a consequence for cure. I was once famously told, well, there are people who didn't have cancer that are worse off than you. And another one of those like t-shirts you never want to wear, but you want to punch somebody in the head mm -hmm. because of it. So what? Are side effects? What are the effects? This concept of when the doctor says go home, you're done. So let, I want to talk about a couple of the things you've, you've managed and struggled with and, and have, have become a champion for. And these are things I've never heard of, and I'm excited to talk about them. Um, I'm going to say this wrong. Trisminal neuralgia? Is that close? Uh, trigeminal neuralgia. Trigeminal neuralgia. So that is a neurological disorder that causes excruciating pain in the face. That sounds horrible, and they believe that is something directly related to your treatments. They can't prove it, but they're almost positive that it is related from my radiation, yes. So it's like, go back to the data. Has there ever been a case 
of a patient who got this based on your treatment or are you so rare in that this is a very rare tumor and it doesn't happen very often in younger people. It's an older person's tumor. Germano was a pediatric brain cancer. Right. I mean, a geriatric brain cancer. Um, it, 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 it really is that you never know. But you kind of have to assume that if you didn't have Chernobyl baking you in the easy oven, you know, this may not have happened. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. Absolutely. Right. So you had overcome uh, this the TN with a procedure called MVD. Yes. Let's talk about that because this is, again, chronic disease and lifestyle and management and, and consequence. And you're a kid. You're, you're a teenager. It's hard enough being a teenager when you're well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and MVD is an abbreviation for a microvascular decompression. Most of the time what happens with trigeminal neuralgia is that your trigeminal nerve runs along both sides of your face and it branches off into three areas your bottom jaw going towards your nose and then going towards your forehead basically and what happens is the nerve uh, the veins and arteries start to wrap around or compress your trigeminal nerve and it destroys the protection that your nerve naturally has around it and once it destroys that, your arteries or your veins are rubbing directly against your nerve and it aggravates it. And that's what causes the excruciating pain. And what the microvascular decompression is, is a surgery where the neurosurgeon goes into the skull and he basically takes um, a material and puts it between the nerve and the veins or the arteries and decompresses it. So it's like a buffer that helps. It's almost like a, a stent in a sense. It's like a, it's a, I believe it was a Teflon coating that, that oh, they wow. used to go around it. That's, that's the amazing technology though. Right. Think yes. about that. So, and after that, you went through a, a series of intractable hiccups for months, weeks? A year. A, that's a lot of months. Yes. Yeah. And again, you're you're 16, 17, 15, high school? I was 18 at the point. Yeah. It was, the hiccups started at the beginning of his senior year. Wow. So what does that do to your social life? What does that do to friends? Like, I mean, again, they're mean when you're well. What was it like for you? In school, I've always been... Switzerland I like to think of myself I sort of got along with everybody and anybody so I never really had issues with people being mean or not getting along or having bad times in school that's great so when everything happened they actually rallied behind me and helped me in getting the medical treatment and they tried to do everything and anything to be there for me and help me through the difficult time. Well, I w my next question was about your support system. Literally, you have loving parents and you have um, friends. Where did you or did you get any other support? Did CHOP offer you groups? Were you introduced other pediatric brain cancer patients or survivors or mom and dad? Were you introduced any other parents Nothing. with a child with cancer? None. None. So no peer support? Mm -mm. No. Well, that's a shame. 
So when Chris had the hiccups, we were basically all in the tri-state area. We were in New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania. Chris's first two MVDs when he had the trigeminal neuralgia the first time we were at Johns Hopkins um, had been back there. We had been to Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Cleveland Clinic. Nobody could figure out what was taking place with his hiccups. And ironically enough, we ended up at UCI in Irvine. Um, oh, really? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and found Dr. Linsky, who right away, you know, said, I could try this, but can't guarantee it. But Chris said, take the chance. I have nothing else to lose. You're my last hope. Well, we have just a minute or two left, but I want to talk about your courage and your bravery. If you had the opportunity, which you do right now with millions of people hopefully listening to the show, what is your message to that young 12-year-old, that the next 12-year-old that is given this massive life-altering challenge to face and potentially a lifetime of struggle with courage? What would you like that 12-year-old to know? Don't give up if you don't like a diagnosis or a treatment option that a doctor is giving you. Don't be afraid to go for a second, third, fourth opinion until you find that correct answer. Don't give up. Don't lose hope because it's only at that point that you truly lose the fight. And really, you just need to push through. You need to be stronger and you just need to fight. Look to your support, to your loved ones, to your family, to your friends. Let them help you through and just keep on fighting and don't give up. So last question, how can people learn more about you, your charity, your story? Do you tweet? Are you on you have a blog, your website? Um, my foundation has a Facebook and Instagram page. It's Chris's Fight for Cure Foundation. And if you just look that up, we give regular updates, motivational quotes and images on Instagram. And we just try to motivate help get awareness and raise money and funds for research. Well, thank you. Chris Knowles, eight-year germinoma young adult brain cancer survivor, clearly overcome numerous obstacles, an inspiration to all of us. And you can learn more about him at the Chris's Fight for a Cure Foundation. Thank you, Angela and Bill. Thank you. Loving parents for joining us here on the Stupid Cancer Show. You get a rousing applause. All right, Mal. And now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That's events.stupidcancer.org. Sign up for meetup alerts and never miss a meetup again. If you'd like to learn more about hosting your own Stupid Cancer meetup, visit stupidcancer.org slash meetup. All right, we've got events happening in Denver, Colorado Springs, San Diego and Las Vegas. No one should face cancer alone because isolation sucks. Now you can get instant anonymous peer support on your mobile device today with Instapeer, our free mobile app for iOS and Android devices. Create your account and privately message with fellow patients, survivors, and caregivers just like you who've been there and walked in your shoes. Join our mobile community of thousands right now on your mobile device. Instapeer for iOS and Android. 
We've launched a newsfeed aggregator on Tumblr for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org slash feed. If you've not yet checked out the Stupid Cancer Community Forums, you're missing out. Join thousands of your peers in a safe and meaningful online environment to get connected, swap stories, learn from one another, and foster the young adult cancer conversation. With hundreds of topics, discussion groups, and issues to choose from, it's a great place to get busy living. Learn more at stupidcancer.org slash community. Support our programs and services by heading over to stupidcancerstore.org. You'll feel great and look great in your new Stupid Cancer gear. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. Marla DeFusco is the blogger behind Luck Bupus, which she writes about uh, the day-to-day and long-term struggles of living with multiple chronic illnesses. She's known for her humorous, non-sugar-coated, I can swear to that, keep it real style of writing. Her blog was used as a platform to help her become an e-patient advocate. She now travels the country attending healthcare conferences, speaking publicly, sharing her story, educating and advocating her patients across the globe. It is my pleasure to welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Marla DeFusco. I am so excited to have you on the show. Oh, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much. This this show, we, we haven't done a show with this specific title, All Young Adult Chronic Diseases Suck, in a couple of years. And, uh, and And that was one of our strongest shows. There's such a common ground where you're not thinking about, oh, mine is worse than yours, but what do we have in common that we can share and learn and grow from? And it was such a takeaway to have, I think that show was on MS, and we might have done something on fibro back then. Um, But it was a really, really, oh, and type type 1 diabetes was also that show too. So there's such a common ground that the Gen X and millennial populations can wrap their heads around and unite around. And you are emblematic of that. And, and I, I have such respect for all that you've chosen to do because you could have just balled up into a corner and you just didn't do that. Oh, well, thank you. No, I, I could have, but I didn't. Uh, that's not really how I roll. But I think we have to use these unfortunate things that come our way and kind of learn from them and teach others about them. So that's kind of why I do what I do. So my first introduction to the word lupus was the you-can-say-yes-or-no decent movie Gross Anatomy in 1989, starring Matthew Modine and Daphne Zuniga, where it was all about this professor at a school who just died of lupus. And oh. that yeah, very, very uplifting. <laughs> it was, You know what? This movie was like the Deborah Winger of Terms of Endearment for lupus. All right. <laughs> I'll put it, the cultural relevancies of death from disease in movies. Yeah. So when I first found out that, like, getting into cancer is like hey there's a lot of other chronic diseases out there i didn't know anything about lupus and then i think i mentioned to you when i saw you the last time one of my wife's best friends is about 24 with lupus and just had a baby so it's so uh it's, it's such a mysterious disease and i was hoping you could talk more about what's the lupus 101 we need to know about 
Sure. So, I mean, I have to be honest, too. Even as a nurse, I didn't know much about lupus. It's not something that was covered much in my studies. The most I had known about it, uh, you know, if you watch the show House, it was never lupus. And apparently on Seinfeld, there's a scene where George, I think, I didn't watch the show, so... I don't really know, but George is in the hospital and apparently he screams, it's lupus, it's lupus. <laughs> so that was kind of my foray into the disease. Um, so lupus is a chronic autoimmune disease that can literally damage any part of the body. Chronic meaning that the signs and symptoms can last longer for six weeks and into many years and that the disease can have periods of remissions uh, and then the symptoms do come back. Uh, in lupus, something goes wrong with your immune system, and the immune system is the part of your body that fights off viruses, bacteria, and germs. Um, so most people's immune systems are able to tell the difference between what we could call foreign invaders, which are those bacteria, the viruses, bacteria, and germs, and fight them off. In lupus, my body can't tell the difference between the foreign invaders and my own tissues. So my immune system actually goes into uh, overdrive um, and starts developing uh, what are called autoantibodies, and that actually attack and destroy my healthy tissues. So again, it can destroy or you know cause damage to and destroy any part of the body. Uh, me specifically, it's excuse me, it's caused damage to my lungs, damage to my heart, and damage to my brain. Uh, I know people who have a lot of kidney issues, people with liver issues. Uh, it can cause people to eventually need organ transplantation. And as that 80s movie you talked about that I've never even heard of, uh, it can lead to death. So it's a, it's a pretty scary disease that doesn't get good publicity, as I'd like to call it. Um, it's often the butt of jokes. Uh, the reason it's so hard to diagnose is, and it's called this mysterious disease, is because it, is it actually mimics so many other diseases. And a lot of the symptoms that a person might first start out with are very vague. Um, someone might first start out with fatigue. Well, this is 2016 where we are constantly doing 9 million things. If you complain to someone that you're tired, you know, someone will be the first person to be like, oh, I'm tired too. Um, it causes a lot of skin rashes, which, you know, uh, can cause rashes on your face, on your arms, anywhere on your body that's um, been um, in the sun, a lot of vague things. So it is really hard to diagnose. And there is no one test uh, that can give you a diagnosis. Um, the American Academy of Rheumatology has 11 diagnostic criteria for lupus. And if you present with four or more of those 11 criteria, then you're given uh, a lupus diagnosis. And it doesn't sound like that many, only four of the 11, but you know, you, you have to have four to get the diagnosis. So let's talk about how you are a nurse and there are, talk about a niche market of healthcare <laughs> professionals who themselves get chronic diseases What's it's that? crap, I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a friend named Eric Galvez. He was a doctor of physical therapy, and he got a, a brain tumor and became uh, paraplegic, uh, partially uh, paralegic uh, in a wheelchair. And he wrote a book called When a Therapist Becomes a Patient. So what's it like when a nurse becomes a patient? Well, so the funny thing is I always have this running joke that I drew the short straw in the family gene pool. 
I was actually born with a congenital heart defect that required four open heart surgeries by the time I was six. So I was born being a patient. Um, and that's, I, I actually went into pediatric cardiac nursing, working at the hospital where I was still a patient and had all my heart surgeries myself. So I was kind of the poster child for the unit for a while, being this adult with congenital heart disease, thriving and doing well in life and, you know, doing all these adult things that cardiologists never thought um, patients with these heart defects would even live to do. So I was kind of already there as a patient. And then when lupus kind of got thrown into the mix, it totally, you know, it totally took the wind from my sails. Um, you know, it was completely unexpected. It happened three weeks after my honeymoon uh, when I returned from St. Lucia. Um, UV light can actually um, can actually cause lupus flares. And my rheumatologists now think that it was my honeymoon being in the sun in St. Lucia is what caused my first initial lupus flare, which is awesome. Um, so again, I was kind of already a patient in that nursing patient. You know, I've been there, done that. But again, this was something that I had never dealt with, not something I really knew anything about. So it really did still kind of, you know, just turn my life around and change, you know, turn everything upside down um, as far as how I was as this nurse turned adult patient. So when, a, when an HCP goes to see another HCP, is it a completely different engagement in terms of information sharing and, and knowledge and resource literacy? It can be. I try not to let anyone know. Like if I go to the ER or, you know, when I'm even just getting worked up in one of my offices by the nurse, I try not to say, hey, I'm a nurse because I feel like they do treat you differently and they don't always necessarily uh, take time to explain things as thoroughly. Just because I'm a nurse doesn't mean I'm an expert in everything. Um, you know, it is good because when I do research articles and read things, I am able to, you know, kind of go through what's reputable and what's not. And I'm able to understand some of the jargon a little better than a normal lay person. But I really try not to say, hey, I'm a nurse before, you know, before a healthcare provider starts talking, because I feel like they'll kind of not necessarily treat me on the same level, but again, overlook some of the things that I actually have questions about. You mentioned your honeymoon. Let's talk about your husband and the relationship and what is it like to be a, in this sense, is it considered a caregiver or great guy or how, how does that work? Well, um, uh, so I'm currently separated. Uh, my husband, we've dealt through a lot in our eight year marriage and it's been really hard on our marriage, obviously, because it started three weeks in and we've had ups and downs. We've gotten through a lot of things, but I think ultimately uh, it could have been what, you know, unfortunately ended the relationship. Um, I'm not saying it's completely over. We're separated, but it really did put a wrench into my marriage. Well, that not, that doesn't happen to everyone. I know that, but no, but it, it, it my, my comment in that line, and I apologize for not knowing that in advance That's is, okay. is that <laughs> relationships can be a litmus test where relationships are really put to the test when these types of things arise. And I have horror stories of other friends in our community whose wife or husband or partner literally walked out the door when they told them they had cancer and never came back. Yeah. I mean, 
gratefully it wasn't anything like that. He's supportive. He's wonderful. He did everything he possibly could for me. I have nothing but wonderful things to say, but I think it really did take its toll on our relationship. And, you know, you live and learn from that. So what is currently the treatments for lupus? Ugh. So unfortunately, there is, uh, as of 2010, um, the first FDA-approved drug specifically for lupus uh, came out, and that was over 50 years since the last FDA-approved drug, which was aspirin. Um, so that is called Benlista, and that is, a, I don't want to call it chemotherapy, it's it's a biologic drug, which, you know, if, if you're not a medical person, it does the same thing. It suppresses the immune system, which in lupus is what you need because in lupus you have an overactive immune system. Um, I do take types of chemotherapy. I take uh, methotrexate, which is uh, a common drug used in different types of cancer. I take the immunosuppressant Imuran. Uh, I take methylprednisolone, which is a type of steroid. Um, I'm on Plaquenil, which is an anti-malarial uh, that helps with some of the joint and photosensitivity issues in lupus. Oh my goodness, what else do I take? I take blood pressure medication more to, not because I have high blood pressure, but more to protect my kidneys from inflammation due to the lupus. Um, there, there's so, unfortunately, there's not a one size fits all drug for anyone that has lupus. You know, I'm on a pretty... Uh, pretty potent immunosuppressant regimen. Some, some with mild lupus only take Plaquenil, which again is that anti-malarial I mentioned. Some just take a, a low-dose steroid. Some people just take a low-dose baby aspirin every day. Um, again, there isn't this one, you know, super treatment uh, that works for everyone. But uh, lately in the news, especially when Selena Gomez came out that she said that she had lupus, um, and that she was treated with chemotherapy. A lot of people were like, you know, kind of assuming that lupus was a type of cancer, which it is not. Um, and a lot of people, even health professionals I know, were, you know, wondering why chemotherapy was being used for the treatment of lupus. And I always say it's the same drugs. I've had medical professionals, you know, when I've said I'm on methotrexate or my port is for chemo infusions, they're like, oh, you have cancer. And I say, no, I have lupus. And they look at me and they're like, why are you on chemotherapy? And I say, because of lupus. And again, they're like, oh, but you also have cancer. No, I have lupus. And then they'll say, but you're not on chemo, like real chemo. And it, it's insulting, not only because I feel like it kind of insults my intelligence, because I do know, you know, the type of treatments that I'm getting, but it's insulting that people are even, you know, obviously I'm not downplaying cancer, but people are always like, well, at least it's not cancer. And people don't realize that we do take a lot of the same treatments that um, people with cancer do do take. Well, you read my mind because that was going to be my next aha moment is that you mentioned that you're on chemotherapy, which is only associated with cancer. And yet, as you pointed out, lupus is not an oncologic or hematologic disease. Correct. And I'm reading here, and I think I, I did some research on this before, there is now a link uh, potentially between lupus and cervical cancer because it's the gift that keeps on giving. It is. Now, you know, as I said, I drew the short straw in 2010. Um, I was diagnosed uh, with type 1A1 cervical cancer. Um, so it's uh, a very, I call it like cancer light. <laughs> 
Um, I went in for a regular pap smear. There were some abnormalities. Uh, I had a cone biopsy done to remove uh, the abnormal cells. And that's when, you know, I found out that those cells were malignant. It was a very small area of cancer in type 1A1. Uh, the cancer area is less than three millimeters deep and less than seven millimeters wide, which is one eighth of an inch by one fourth of an inch. So I'm very lucky. Uh, I always kind of joke that, you know, my doctor kind of did a scrape, scrape and remove the cancer cells. Uh, the funny thing is when I, when I do fill out medical histories for new doctors, I almost forget to, to write that down because it's not something, you know, by the grace of God that was ever, you know, I really needed to be treated for. I had this one procedure. Now I get, you know, frequent checkups with my gynecologist and, you know, it's kind of this thing I had <laughs> that kind of, you know, I had that procedure and it went away and it's not luckily something that I have to think of on a day to day, um, you know, on my day to day as I'm like taking my millions of pills for lupus. Um, but yes, as I ramble on, there is a link between cervical cancer and lupus. There was uh, a study done in Sweden not too long ago, uh, conducted of 5,000 women that were living with lupus. Uh, they enrolled in this study and uh, one cohort was treated with those first line anti the first line antimalarials that I told you about, which is called Plaquenil, um, and then another cohort that uh, has their lupus treated with a, a, uh, aggressive immunosuppressants versus the general population. Um, and it was found that those treated with the uh, aggressive immunosuppressants um, did have a higher likelihood of cervical cancer. Um, I, it was in a YouTube video um, and they had uh, another link to the article itself. And of course, I don't have it pulled up, um, but it did show this link. Now, the problem is, is it the lupus itself that, that leads to this cervical cancer? Because, you know, lupus does affect the immune system. So is this crazy immune system allowing, um, you know, the abnormal uh, dysplasia cells you know, to multiply and, and later become cervical cancer? Or is it the treatment itself the immunosuppressants such as the Imuran, the methotrexate, the Benlista, you know, I could go on and on with the types of immunosuppressants that treat lupus, but is it actually the treatment that leads to this? Um, so it's kind of, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? So one thing I can tell to all my lupus ladies out there is, you know, make sure you're staying on top of your pap smears. Um, unfortunately, a lot of insurances now aren't paying for a yearly annual pap smear, which is just crazy in, its, in and of itself. But hopefully, you know, if you have lupus and, you know, your insurance company isn't paying for this, you can have your doctor, you know, write a letter or, you know, do something to make sure that this is covered or go to Planned Parenthood where luckily these services are free. So you're online. You've chosen to take a very vocal role in this <laughs> chronic disease. Uh, luck Fupus, which I think <laughs> no one needs an explanation for what that is. Uh, you have no. you, you have you have uh, eleven hundred followers on Twitter. You're you are a very popular and in demand speaker and public advocate. Uh, and you, we talked before the show that you were just uh, uh, got into Stanford Medics uh, advocate. What what's the title again? Uh, I'm a, I'm going to be a Stanford Medics e patient scholar. That's phenomenal. Oh, thank you. I to be honest, I didn't really know too much about it. I know a lot of other patient advocates I've met um, 
you know, in the circuit have um, been participating in the Stanford MedX conference uh, the past couple of years. I had someone reach out and say, hey, you should apply for this. I think I applied with like maybe 10 hours left before the application deadline was due. And I just found out last week uh, that I was chosen. So I'm going to be working uh, with a social worker from the Compassionate Care Coalition of California. Little shout out to them. They're wonderful. Hi, Liz. Um, she's a brain tumor survivor. I have to throw that in too. But I'm going to be working with a social worker from there. Um, and I'm going to pres be presenting how um, precision medicine can be a wonderful thing uh, with, with uh, adolescents and young adults who have chronic illnesses and how precision medicine can help them um, uh, transition to adult health care. So I'm going to be writing a paper on that and presenting it while I'm there. I, I don't suppose I'm the first person to mention this, but there seems to be a theme of 80s hits on your blog <laughs> Uh, with the titles of some of your posts, a little Lionel Richie here. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> heaven or this could be heaven or this could be hell. Little uh, was that the Eagles? The Eagles. Yeah. Um, you're got uh, hello. Is it? No, oh, that's Lionel Richie. Uh, oh. Take these broken wings <laughs> and learn to fly. Um, <laughs> so let's hear for the boys. So, what drives your content? Is it just spur of the moment? You plan it. Uh, what is it you're trying to share? Are the themes. <laughs> So as I just said that I waited like 10 hours before a deadline to submit an application, I'm the worst procrastinator. I have a lot of uh, health blogger friends who plan posts too much in advance, two months in advance. And that is, that is not me. As you can see, I think it's been two months since my last post. <laughs> um, I kind of just, as I get ideas, as things come into media, whether it be, you know, research articles or new findings, I kind of post as I go along. Um, my blog started out, you know, really as a means for me just to vent um, about the disease itself. Uh, I started it almost five years ago when I first went out of work on disability. You know, I was pissed off at the world. I needed some kind of outlet to vent to. And that's that's how my blog started. And maybe a year, year and a half later, people started reaching out. I honestly didn't think anyone but my mom or my sister read it. Um, people started reaching out, like saying, hey, I, I have lupus. I, I get what you're saying. I love that you're putting it out there, you know, and saying what I want to say and how I really feel about the disease. And from there, it, it turned into, you know, sharing articles, sharing research. You know, a, a lot of the issues with lupus are rashes on your faces. Um, you know, sharing different cosmetics that are really great for covering those rashes, just things that, you know, really pertain to the lupus community. Uh, in general, and that's really kind of been my driving force. But again, uh, why is my computer making noise? Sorry. Um, again, I don't really have a schedule. It kind of, you know, when ideas come to me, uh, I kind of just start writing and go from there. I'm more of a write and post right away kind of girl than a write a post over a week or two and go back and edit kind of person. So let me spend the the, uh, the rest of the interview talking about uh, isolation. That lupus can be a very lonely disease, and uh, I you're not the first person I met from the chronic disease uh, community. Uh, I met Amy Tendrick from Type One Diabetes, and there's a group called Jimmy Insulin in Chicago, and the MS groups uh, for young adults. And they're all like, "Well, stupid cancer. Why can't there be a stupid lupus?" Rhetorically. <laughs> What is it like to be young with lupus in America? Is it is it lonely? Is it isolating? Because 
you know, if you're living with or you want to get pregnant, you want to date, like how is the life? Tell us about the life of a young woman with lupus. So uh, one, it's isolating. Um, you know, I'm sure you you've heard of uh, Christina Miserandino. Yes. She's, uh, you know, the founder of the spoon theory, but you don't look sick. That's one of the not that I want to look sick bleeding out my eyeballs, but it's one of the most frustrating things about lupus. Like, you know, some days I look great and I feel like a truck ran over me and people, you know, see you physically and think just because you look great that that you must feel good. And I don't think people come from a place of malice when they say that, but people don't realize that it really is a debilitating disease um, that, you know, puts you in bed for weeks at a time. Um, so it's isolating. Uh, it's a disease, like I said, that doesn't get much publicity. Um, when I lost my hair, lupus uh, can actually cause hair loss. I lost all my hair. And I feel like, you know, that was the only time I ever really got recognition for being sick. And that's because everyone, you know, in the public thought I had cancer. Um, you know, people come up to me, you know, strangers, which I think is great. You know, strangers will come up to me like I'm a survivor, too. Or, you know, random strangers would just like come up and give me hugs, which was kind of creepy at best. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I, I loved the the solidarity there. Like, hey, been there, done that. But like I felt like if I was like, hey, actually, I, I don't have cancer. I have lupus. People would have just kind of like backed away slowly, like, OK, whatever. So, again, not that I'm knocking cancer because, one, I'm a survivor and, two, you know, how could I do that, obviously? But I feel like when I did lose my hair, um, it's the only time I really got uh, recognition for having this disease. And I'm sure a lot of other people with lupus and other types of these invisible autoimmune, mental illness, you know, all these invisible diseases would say that it is isolating because people don't realize how sick they are. Um, when I was walking with a cane, people kind of thought I was faking it because I am so young. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't get the handicap placard because I was nervous that, you know, you see all those things online, you know, people leave post-it notes on people's windshields. Like you don't, you know, your car shouldn't be parked here. And I just didn't want to deal with any of that. And again, it's just, it's extremely isolating. Um, you know, I, this isn't for everyone with lupus, but I can't have children. So I'm, I'm 34. My entire, you know, since my diagnosis almost eight years ago, you know, I've watched all my friends around me, male and female, start families and, you know, moving on with the next step of their lives. And, you know, not that I wasn't included in that, but I just felt like I almost didn't belong because I was back dealing with this disease and, you know, not being able to do one of the things that, you know, I still want to do in life you know, that just might not be feasible with the, with this disease. Um, and, you know, like, like I keep saying, it's just, it's isolating. It's depressing. It's, it's so many things that I can't even articulate, but it, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> if we're just going to put it that way. It, it's not an easy disease. Well, it, again, it speaks to the narrative we're trying to share on this podcast, which is that all young adult chronic diseases suck. They do royally suck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you are, take this for what it's worth, you are a shining example of hope and courage and optimism, even though you're talking about reality, because that's what people need to know. It's not all glory. It's and, not. <laughs> and and it, it, you need that community. I, I have great hopes 
that and Christine's a really dear friend of mine as well. The spoon theory is is a phenomenal idea. It's really taken off, and I hope it resonates with people. You can Google the spoon theory, but uh, Marla DeFusco, uh, young adult lupus survivor. Do you guys use the word survivor? Is that a stigma or is that something that is part of the community? Uh, the, I, th- I think the word warrior. Warrior. Because uh, lupus is a disease is a chronic disease that doesn't have a cure, and sometimes I feel like survivor has that kind of correlates with the word cure, if that makes sense. Well, like a car accident survivor, like you could have died kind of thing. Yes. Whereas, you know, lupus is something that's going to be with me for the rest of my life. Right. So I kind of just, you know, warrior on through it <laughs> or something. Yeah. You blog at luckfupus.com and you're on Twitter yes. at luckfupus. No, I'm on Twitter at Marla Jan. At Marla Jan. Okay. M-A-R-L-A-J-A-N. Okay. Is, was Luck Fupus really taken on Twitter? Uh, Yes. Really? Yes. Okay. It was. All right. You're not on Twitter at Luck Poopus. I'm not. Marla Jan. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much, Matt, for having me. This has been awesome. Take care. I'll see you soon. Bye. Thanks. Bye. All righty. And now it's time for our closing sequence of the uh, season 18 finale of The Stupid Cancer Show. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, the 393rd episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or following us on SoundCloud. I'd like to thank our guest, Chris Knowles, and his parents, Angel and Bill, and Marla DeFusco, for joining us on the season 18 finale of The Stupid Cancer Show. Broadcasting since 2007, The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. Coming to you from the chemo deck, and on behalf of my team here at The Stupid Cancer Show, we hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here in September when we start airing Season 19 of the stupid cancer show take care folks be good on hold it seems no one can relate watching classmates graduate while you're still stuck in a bed up in the hospital inpatient fucked in